Today we come to one of the most well-known, beloved psalms, probably the most well-known, Psalm 23. And as we, we come to this, let me ask you a question, because this is, this is kind of leading into the psalm. What would life feel like, and what would life look like if God vanished from your sight? What would life feel like for you? What would life look like if God vanished from sight? In other words, if Jesus Christ was not your good shepherd, what would life be like for you? What is life like for many people who do not have Jesus Christ as their good shepherd? Well, David Paulison has written an anti-Psalm 23, and by anti, it's, it's it's really the exact opposite of what Psalm 23 is, and it helps us to understand what life would look like and life would feel like if God did vanish. Here's how it goes. It's on the screen for you. I'm on my own. No one looks out for me or protects me. I experience a continual sense of need nothing's quite right. I'm always restless. I'm easily frustrated and often disappointed. It's a jungle. I feel overwhelmed. It's a desert. I'm thirsty. My soul feels broken, twisted, and stuck. I can't fix myself. I stumble down some dark paths. Still, I insist, I want to do what I want, when I want, how I want. But life's confusing. Why don't things ever really work out? I'm haunted by emptiness and futility, shadows of death. I fear the big hurt and final loss. Death is waiting for me at the end of every road, but I'd rather not think about that. I spend my life protecting myself. Bad things can happen. I find no lasting comfort. I'm alone, facing everything that could hurt me. Are my friends really friends? Other people use me for their own ends. I can't really trust anyone. No one has my back. No one is really for me except me. And I'm so much all about me, sometimes it's sickening. I belong to no one except myself. My cup is never quite full enough. I'm left empty. Disappointment follows me all the days of my life. Will I just be obliterated into nothingness? Will I be alone forever, homeless, free-falling into void? Sartre said, hell is other people. I have to add, hell is also myself. It's a living death, and then I die. That is anti-Psalm 23, the exact opposite of what the Scripture says about Jesus Christ. This anti-Psalm tells us what life feels like and what it looks like whenever God vanishes from sight. It's a miserable existence, is it not? Oh man, what a blessing to, to know Jesus Christ and to walk with him. The anti-psalm captures the pointlessness of life. 
Is it any wonder that those who live like this end up committing suicide? Is it any wonder? Because life's pointless. And so it's expressing the fears and the silent despair that can't find a voice because there's no one to really listen. There's nobody to talk to for someone who lives this way. And so when you're caught up in this kind of anti-psalm, it doesn't help when psychologists or psychiatrists or counselors or whatever, whatever their title is, when, when they go in they, and they label you a disorder, or they give you a syndrome, or they call you a case, right? It doesn't help when they do that, because the problem is actually far more serious than just giving you a syndrome or some disorder. See, the disorder is my life. The syndrome is, is this. I, I'm on my own. That's the syndrome. I'm on my own. I don't have Jesus. And, and the case would be this. Who am I and what am I actually living for? That's the root case. And so... It, if the case is, who am I and what am I living for, when too clearly, then I am actually at the center of my own story. And that's a problem. But then on the other hand, the anti-psalm doesn't need to be the final story. See, what we just read shouldn't be the final story. There is something better. It, it only becomes your reality or your final story when you're constructing your reality from a lie. Because what we read is not really the truth. In reality, someone else is the center of the story, and nobody can make Jesus go away. Nobody can make Jesus go away. So what needs to happen is people need to understand reality then, don't they? We need to understand. Wake up. And see Jesus. And, and when you awaken, when, when you see who Jesus actually is, it changes everything. And you can see the person who now cares for you, who has the ability uh, to, to be able to, to help you, and, and then you can trust in that person. You experience his care. I do. And, and then you'll see the person whose glory then you are meant to actually worship. See, you love him because he loves you. And so the real Psalm 23 is capturing for us what life feels like, what life looks like when Jesus is loving you. And you know it. And you're, you're walking with him, living in his presence. Well, this psalm was written by the human author, David, whom the Holy Spirit used and he's introducing a couple metaphors for us that helps us to know a little bit more about God, particularly Jesus Christ. It is coming in the context of these messianic psalms. And so the first metaphor that describes the relationship between the Lord and his people comes with a very tender analogy of a shepherd and his sheep, a shepherd and his flock. So let's look at this Psalm 23, read it together. I'll read it, you just follow along in your Bible. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. 
He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So in this first analogy of a shepherd and his sheep, we see some important news, some good news about God, that he is my good shepherd. God is my good shepherd. Now, before we get any farther into this, it's it's important for us to understand that even though Psalm 23 starts off by saying the Lord or Yahweh is my shepherd, you need to understand that not everybody has God as their shepherd shepherd. David could say that God was his shepherd because he had a personal relationship with God. He had put his faith and his trust in Jesus Christ alone to save him. And so it would not be accurate to say that the Lord is everyone's shepherd because that is not true. The Lord is only the shepherd of those whom Jesus knows. And he He knows his sheep, John 10 says, and he calls them by name. So the question is, does Jesus know you? Are you actually one of his sheep? Well, if you're not, then you need to become one of his sheep so that you can understand what David's talking about here when he says, the Lord is my shepherd. David understands this truth here in verse 1 that he is God's humble sheep. I am God's humble sheep. So during David's youth, he was a shepherd watching over his father's sheep, his father's flock. You can read about that in the book of Samuel. He was familiar with this picture, and so David's using something he's familiar with here. And so transferring that image over to God, what is he saying? He's he's saying the Lord, Yahweh, is my shepherd. And it's interesting because David uses the word my. That little word my is emphasizing how deeply personal and close David's relationship with God really was. Is it any wonder that the Bible says that David was a man after God's own heart? He had a close relationship with God. And so he could say the Lord is my shepherd. It was personal. And I'm amazed as you look at this that God actually allows himself to be described this way, by the way. Because you need to understand something. In ancient Israel, a shepherd's work was considered to be the lowest of all work. You might ask, well, why is that the case? Because you need to understand what did a shepherd actually do? Shepherds in Bible times are different from, you know, maybe a modern day sheep farmer in New Zealand. So you got to the, the imagery you might have a sheep, of a sheep farmer in New Zealand, you've got to remove that thinking from your mind. Because there's this agricultural barrier that we, we have as we come to the Scripture. And we might take our presuppositions into this. 
See, back then, a shepherd would actually live with his sheep 24 hours a day, 365 days, uh, you know, you know the, all the time. That's the point. It was unwavering devotion. It didn't matter if it was day or night. It didn't matter if it was good weather or bad weather. They were always with their sheep. They were there because they were nurturing their sheep, guiding their sheep, protecting their sheep. They, they had to make sure they had food and water and make sure they were protected from wild animals or, or even some people that might want to hurt them or steal them. So the shepherd would assume full responsibility for the needs and the safety of his flock, even, even risking his own life to protect them. David understood that because do you remember when he was having that conversation with King Saul? He's, he told King Saul, God's going to help me to defeat that giant, that blaspheming giant out there. He, he's he's going to get it because God is going to enable me to do it. God enabled me to kill a lion that came to attack his flock. God allowed me to, to deal with a bear. And so that was the shepherd's job was to, to protect the flock. Even if a lion or a bear was to come, David, David, he took his sling and, and he dealt with those wild animals. So David understood this. He risked his own life to protect his sheep. And so this is what God has chosen to be to his people. A shepherd. A lowly shepherd. And, and this, this truly is everything when you understand and you grasp this concept that the Lord is my shepherd. Well, that has an effect. Notice the effect in verse 1. I shall not lack anything. It says, I shall not want. <laughs> That's an amazing truth. I, <laughs> can you actually say that and believe that? This is amazing because of the greatness of God and because He's constantly loving and carrying over his flock. David was able to say this. He really believed this. I shall not be in want. It's an amazing statement, is it not? Well, left to themselves, you need to understand something about sheep. Sheep lack everything, right? Have any of you ever done any sheep farming? I'm curious. Any of you? No, no, Nobody's done anything with sheep at all? Okay, well, you need to understand, sheep lack everything. They're totally helpless, totally defenseless animals. They can't care for themselves. Even in a wonderful place like New Zealand, they, the sheep farmers still have to look after them, even though they don't have any wild animals to attack them. The farmers are constantly drenching them, you know, giving them medicine, putting you know, stuff down their throat, and you know, shearing them, and whatever else is involved. But under the shepherd's care, all their needs are abundantly met. If you have a good shepherd, and that's the way it is, by the way, for every Christian who has God as their shepherd. The good shepherd cares for his sheep so they lack nothing. You're not going to want anything because the good shepherd knows your needs even better than you do, and he cares for you. Well, here's one piece of good advice. If that's true, and it is, then we need to remain under the watch care of God and actually enjoy it. See, what you believe about God's character is going to determine 
are you going to remain under him? See, if you believe he's a good shepherd, then you're not going to wander off. You're not going to have this perspective. You heard that perspective, the grass is greener on the other side of the fence. Right? You've heard that, I hope. Have you ever seen a sheep do that where they're, you know, they, they don't like their paddock? You know, somehow the, the grass is, they think the grass on the other side of the fence is actually better? I experienced this one time when I was out turkey hunting. And I was wandering around, you know, the back paddock of some farmer's field. And I came across a sheep that had its head stuck in a gate. And I walked up to it. And, it, and it's it's freaking out as the closer I'm getting to it, this this sheep is banging its head against the gate trying to run away from me because it thought the grass was greener on the other side of the fence. And in the process, it got its head stuck. And it would have died if I hadn't come along. And so Daniel and I were there, and we, we opened up the, the boards on the gate to let its head out, and, the, and, it, and it took off to go meet the other sheep. That thing had the wrong perspective. He should have just been content in his own paddock. He had heaps of wonderful green grass to eat, lots of friends to be with. But he, he wants to get that one blade of grass that was on the other side of the fence because that one blade of grass is better than what, all the thousands he has. And he almost killed himself in the process. And we, we, we laugh at that, but God compares us to sheep. We do the same thing. God is this shepherd, this good shepherd, my shepherd. I'm not wanting anything because he knows my needs. He's looking after me. And we got this perspective that, uh, well, I'm, I'm discontent. You know, God, I'm discontent. You know, you, you, you don't actually love me the way I want to be loved. You're not really good. Uh, I think the grass is greener on the other side of the fence. So we're constantly seeking something. Well, grass isn't greener on the other side of the fence. So let's remain under the watch care of this wonderful, good God and enjoy it. Don't, be, don't become discontented. You say, why? Because you need to understand who God is. He's an all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present, and all-sufficient God. <laughs> That's all you need to know. And so all of God's sheep are precious to him. And, and if you're actually one of his sheep, then you're not going to lack anything that's actually good for you. Sure, you're going to lack a lot of bad stuff, right? right? You know, some people, are they, they, they think God is some sort of a killjoy. They don't understand he's actually good. He's, seen, he's like some mean ogre that wants to keep them from having fun. No, he's not. God's good. And so if he tells you don't do something, or if he tells you do this, it's because he loves you, and he is trying to be good to you. And you need to believe that. You look at the commands in the Bible, some people look at that and say, God doesn't want me to have fun. Wrong perspective. So when God tells you something in the Bible, you ought to look at that and say, God loves me. He's good. He wants what's best for me. I'm going to do it. I may not understand it, but this is what the Bible says. I'm going to believe it and act upon it. That's the right perspective. You're not going to lack anything that's good and, and necessary for enjoying your life to the fullest. It would be very easy for me to say, 
man, I've never had alcohol. I've never had any liquor. I wonder what I'm missing. <laughs> well, I mean, that's kind of silly. What, what am I missing? I'm missing hangovers. I'm missing vomiting. I'm missing destroying my liver and my kidneys. And, you know, the list goes on and on. Why did God not want me to get drunk? Because he, he, he knows what's best for me. He's protecting me from all that sort of stuff. The wrong perspective would be for me to say the grass is greener on the other side of the fence. Well, man, I'm going to go to the bar and try. I wonder what these, why do all these people go to the bars? What am I missing? Right? It'd be easy for me to have that kind of perspective, but fortunately I don't. By God's grace, I'm not missing anything good because God says, you shall not want. Number three. God says, I shall not lack rest. So he starts getting to some specific things of how we're not going to uh, not want anything that's anything else than what he gives us. In verse 2, he says, he makes me lie down in green pastures. In other words, I'm not going to lack rest. Now, you're not literally a sheep, so that may not sound too appealing to you. But the point is, you're not going to lack rest. Now, as we, as we jump into this, there's some cultural barriers, some, some barriers here that we need to overcome in order to properly understand the passage. Because you're not literally a sheep. You don't live in ancient Israel. None of you have actually been shepherds. So the first thing is we need to stop thinking of New Zealand. We need to stop thinking of our nice green grass that, that usually is everywhere, except for this time of year. See, Israelite shepherds didn't have the luxury that we have in New Zealand of having heaps of beautiful green grass. You'll, you'll see in a picture here. This is actually Bethlehem. Do you actually see any nice green grass? <laughs> if you see any, let me know, because I don't see any. That photo there in Bethlehem shows what, what the sort of thing that David himself would have had to deal with. So you have to understand that when David says, that God makes me lie down in green pastures. Green pastures, that's, that sounds pretty good when that's what you're used to. Second of all, we need to stop thinking like the city slickers most of us are. By the way, if you're, do you know what a city slicker is? I don't know if you use that terminology in China or not. A city slicker is somebody who lives in a city and doesn't know what country life is. In case... You're not familiar with that term. So, so it, country people make fun of city slickers, or, or what the South Islanders, uh, they call them townies. You know, these farmers down in the South Island, I know they're, they're those townies. You know, they, they don't know what life is like on the farm. <laughs> so we've got to stop thinking like the city slickers most of us are. And, and, and I found it helpful when I read Philip Keller's book, a shepherd looks at Psalm 23, because Philip Keller was a shepherd. He literally was a shepherd. He was a sheep farmer. He understands more about sheep than I do, so I found this quite illuminating. And, and he said this, The strange thing about sheep is that because of their very makeup, it is almost impossible for them to be made to lie down unless there's four requirements that are met. Now, remember, this is coming from a sheep farmer, a shepherd. Here's what he says. Four requirements for sheep to actually lie down. By the way, have you ever noticed as you drive around New Zealand, how often do you actually see a sheep lying down? 
They've got nice green grass, but it's very rare, isn't it, that you actually see them lying down. There's four requirements. Number one, because they're very timid in their nature, they refuse to lie down unless they're free of all fear. So if there's any sort of fear at all, even make-believe fear, they're not going to lie down. Number two, because of the social behavior that, that is the, the very makeup of a flock, sheep will not lie down unless they're free from friction with others of their own kind. You can understand, As you read this stuff, you, you start to maybe understand why God calls us sheep. But anyway, number three, if they're tormented by flies or parasites, sheep will not lie down. And then four, sheep will not lie down as long as they feel in need of finding food. You often see them wander around. They graze. They have to be free from hunger in order for them to lie down. So that's an amazing thing as you think about verse 2 where David says, hey, God makes me lie down. They're at rest. They're They're free from these sort of things. And so in light of Psalm 23, Philip Keller gives a very interesting solution in his book. He says this, I'm quoting now, To be at rest, there must be a definite sense of freedom from fear, tension, aggravations, and hunger. The unique aspect of the picture is it's only the sheepman himself who can provide release from these anxieties. End quote. Now, as you think about that, who's the sheepman? Who's the shepherd? God is. Yahweh is my shepherd. And who's the one who gives rest? Well, it's interesting what Jesus says in Matthew 11. Look what Jesus says here. You say, who is the one who gives rest? Jesus said this, Matthew 11:28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So who is the one who gives rest? The good shepherd gives his sheep rest. Number four. We also find this one in verse two. I shall not lack peace. I shall not lack peace. Because verse two says that he leads me beside still waters. Literally, this refers to waters that have been stilled. So again, you need to understand something about sheep. If a sheep is weary and it needs some long, refreshing drink, which is often the case, particularly if you were a sheep in Bethlehem area, sheep are instinctively afraid of running water. They're very easily frightened. So they're... If there's some uh, a stream that's flowing along and, the, and they can see that water moving, they're not likely, very unlikely to go and drink from that sort of source. And so the shepherd would often, and David probably even did this, so he, he might pick up a, some stones and he might make a little dam from the, in the rushing stream to kind of slow the current of the water down so he could somehow create a quiet spot for his sheep to come drink. It's the only way a flock might drink without having fear. That's what David's alluding to here when he says, 
that God leads me beside still waters. Because he understood that his sheep aren't going to drink from a fast-flowing stream. That, that doesn't bring peace. We are so blessed, aren't we, that our good shepherd is also described in the Bible as living water. Jesus says he is the living water, and when you drink of him, you'll never thirst again. And then number five, I shall not lack life. I shall not lack life. Coming from verse three, where he says he restores my soul. See, the good shepherd restores my soul. And by the way, that statement is subject to different interpretations. Uh, It could be a picture of the straying sheep who may have wandered off, and the good shepherd goes and and he brings his sheep back, which was really a way of saying that the sheep needs repentance, needs conversion. But in some translations, that word soul there in your Bible is, is sometimes translated as life. So you could say, he restores my life. And the idea is there that God restores our physical health, or even, even getting into greater aspects as well. But so, so which is it? Well, I think it's actually both. You could take it both ways, I think. So this is glorious truth, because Jesus himself said in John 14, verse 6, that I am the way, the truth, and the life. The one who is life is able to restore your life and give you abundant life. But he's also described himself as the great physician, the one who does the work to restore our lives. So, I shall not lack life. And then number six, I shall shall not lack guidance. He's going to guide me. He's not going to leave me alone because verse 3 says he leads me in paths of righteousness. Unlike other animals, did you know that that sheep, they don't have this like, uh, this GPS system in their brain. (laughs) They they lack a sense of direction. They can easily get lost, which is why the Bible talks about them wandering and and straying, and and sometimes sheep can can easily get lost, even, even sometimes when they're in a familiar environment. And that's why David would lead his sheep. They easily go astray because they're prone to wander. And so the shepherd had to continually guide them on the right path if they want to keep moving from, 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 from paddock to paddock, going from, from feeding area and drinking area to where, wherever they needed to go. And so, so David, as a shepherd, would lead them. He'd walk in front to keep them out of danger. Well, that reminds me of a song that we often sing, a hymn called Come Thou Fount. Verse 3 is encouraging in that song, Come Thou Fount, because it says, Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. That describes me. My heart is prone to wander. My heart is prone to, to die, if you will. It's like, like a fire. It's prone to go out. 
Well, the one who is the light of the world didn't leave us without guidance. He gave us the light of his word. He gave us the Holy Spirit to guide us. So Jesus Christ is the light of the world. We don't have to live in darkness, even though this world is dark. And so Christ has given us his Holy Spirit. He's the one who wrote the Bible. And in Psalm 19, the Bible is describing itself as a light to our path. So by his word and the spirit, God's going to guide his flock effectively in the right way. Notice, by the way, why God does this in verse 3. Why does he do this? Notice he says it's for his name's sake. He's going to guide you. He's going to take care of you, lead you. And it's all for his name's sake. In other words, if you don't understand that terminology, he's doing this for the honor of his own glory. He's doing it, uh, you have to understand, in a name, there was a lot associated within a name. It's kind of the the summary, the, the encapsulating who you are. A lot of honor that goes with that. And so that's, of course, the highest of all motives in God saying, I'm doing this for, for my sake, for my honor, for my glory. And then seven, I shall not lack safety. Because God is my shepherd, I shall not lack safety. And David portrayed the shepherd as being able to protect his sheep in moments of great danger when he, when he says in verse 4, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you're not alone. Notice he says, For you are with me. You are with me. David's saying, God's with me. He's the all-present shepherd. And so the shepherd would lead his flock from one grazing place to another. That's what David did. And they would move. Often they would, as they move around, they would have to go through narrow valleys or what, what, what they might call wadis, where they would have high, jagged cliffs. And often it would be filled with potential dangers. And there, there might be lurking wild animals that might be looking for lunch. Sheep taste good, doesn't it? And that, that would, those would be the the kind of dangers that might be lurking. And so often in these valleys, as I understand, the sun would become obstructed from shining into these places because of the high cliffs. And it would create darkness. It would create shadows. And, and those kind of shadows in those valleys would often become a, a place of death for sheep, particularly a wandering sheep who, who had lost sight of his shepherd and so you, you got that phrase in your Bible there in verse 4. It, it mentions the shadow of death. So that's what David's talking about. He understood this. He probably lost sheep himself. As he would go through these valleys, uh, sheep might wander off. And so even though there's shadows in these wadis, the, I understand the air in the bottom of those wadis or those valleys is very heavy. It's, it's very oppressive. And it gets incredibly hot. There's, there's no breeze to move the air. And so a wandering sheep might find themselves lost and would end up dying in the shadows of death. By the way, did you notice why verse 4 says that we are safe? Verse 4 says we're safe for two reasons. Number one, God's presence. 
and God's power. My friend, if, if God is your shepherd, you have his power and you have his presence. So even in danger, God's present to guard us. He's present to guide us as his sheep. Again, I'm reminded that Jesus Christ described himself as life itself in John 14. He is the life. By the way, keeping with the shepherd imagery here, verse 4, David says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So you need to understand something. A shepherd like like David would have had a rod, he probably did, a rod and a staff. The rod was usually a wooden club about maybe two feet long or or maybe, you know, less than a meter long. It was usually for the purpose of defending the flock against wild animals so they could could hopefully beat off a wild animal. (coughs) It was also used for counting the sheep, for guiding, protecting his sheep. So often they might have some sort of a, a rock barrier that they would they would have for sleeping overnight. And so the shepherd would be the door. He would lie across the doorway. So the shepherd was literally the door. You need to understand that imagery in John 10 when Jesus says, I am the door. And so they would lie there and protect their sheep. And they might use that rod counting their sheep, make sure they're all there. If one was missing, then they might go look for it. Sheep might wander off. Well, the shepherd's staff was, was that, that crook that you often, uh, you probably know of. It was, it was a longer rod with, uh, with a curve on the end. It was bent. It was hooked. It was used to pry sheep loose from, uh, it might be caught in a thicket, or maybe he could use it to push some, some branches away or to help clear out a path as, as they're walking, or he could use it to pull fallen sheep that may be in a hole or to lead them along the narrow paths, or maybe even to, to drive off a snake, or whatever. There, there was multi-purposes for this. And, and David understood that, and he's comforted by this, because God, the good shepherd, has a rod and a staff. Those tools were sources of comfort to fearful sheep. Well, we come to verse 5 now, and the imagery changes. David changes his metaphor from being that, that God is a shepherd, but now, now he shifted the metaphor to, to something else, that God is his gracious host. God's a gracious host. That's what we see in verses 5 and 6. And so David talks about himself here in verse 5, and he says, I'm God's lowly guest. He described himself as God's lowly sheep in the previous metaphor, but now he's God's lowly guest when he says in verse 5, God, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. So as a gracious host, he would attend to the needs of his guest. And by the way, you have to understand something about the Middle Eastern culture. Their honor is involved in this, and honor means everything. And so if you were the, the guest of, a, of some Middle Eastern person and you come into their tent or their house, they're going to look after all your needs. 
David says, God, you prepare a table before me. Even in the presence of my enemies, you'll do that. And so it doesn't matter if you're surrounded by enemies who are seeking to harm you. David understood that too, didn't he? He had lots of enemies. But David recognized that God was with him, and he was with him for his own good, supplying his needs as any good host would do, caring for his guest. David's needs were met, even though he had lots of enemies. God protected him, looked after him. Number two, I shall not lack provision. The good host, the gracious host, provides, according to verse 5, because he says, you anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. It was the custom of a loving host to provide oil if you came into his tent or his home, he would, he would put oil on the head of the honored guest, and you'd say, that's kind of gross. Well, not during that time, because that was a source of refreshment. They enjoyed that. That was a good thing. Okay, so again, we have this little barrier that you'd say, I don't want them doing that to me, but don't miss the point. God is looking after you, providing. You're not lacking provision here. David says, oh that's, oh, that's refreshing. You anoint my head with oil. And so he's speaking of the Lord's ministry to him on a spiritual level, on an internal level. Even though he's surrounded by many foes that are threatening him, he's finding this provision, this comfort, this rest. And so the presence of God renewed him for all the demands of life. Then number three, notice what David says here. He says, I shall not lack grace. I shall not lack grace. That's, that, that's the basic idea there when he says, my cup overflows. That's what verse 5 says, my cup overflows. And David was able to testify to this truth that he didn't lack grace, God's grace. It refers to this constant supply of drink that any attentive host would do. You ever been in someone's house or, or you go to a restaurant Somebody who's on the ball, somebody who's paying attention to your every whims and your needs. You, you, you ever had that situation where you, you drink and somebody comes along and fills up your cup? You keep drinking, they keep filling it up. Has that ever happened to you? That's the idea. It, some of you might find that annoying. I don't know. But it's impressive when that happens. That's the idea here. His cup was always more than filled to the brim. In other words, he's not lacking here. It was overflowing with the most satisfying drink imaginable. God was gracious. It's a wonderful picture of God's abundant grace. Your glass is never half empty because God keeps it full. He knows what you need. And so in the midst of even dangerous circumstances, God's an infinite source of all we need to live a victorious Christian life. He's given you everything you need. For life and godliness. Number four. David says, I shall not lack goodness. I shall not lack goodness. Look at verse six. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me. How much? All the days of my life. All the days of my life. And so, oh, there's, there's a lot we could say about this, but I'm going to keep it short. You need to understand that even when David found himself in life-threatening situations, because remember, he's, he's already said in verse 5, 
I am in the presence of my enemies. Even in these life-threatening situations, he understood God's blessings were with him. They were chasing him. They were always there with him. Always. Because God's everywhere. God sees everything. He's able to to deal with these situations that David was in. He's he's able to, to look after us in whatever situations we're in as well. Not going to lack goodness when God is your shepherd and he's your gracious host. And then number five, I shall not lack eternal blessing. When God is your gracious host, you will not lack eternal blessing. By the way, you look at verse six, it says, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's a triumphant way to end this beautiful psalm. David's declaring that even death would serve his greater good. The the thing that so many people fear is not the end for one who has God. It's only the beginning of greater things to come. David understood it was actually going to usher him into God's immediate presence where he can enjoy God forever. So David understood there's nothing that is able to separate a Christian from the love of God. And Paul says it this way in Romans 8, not even death can separate you from the love of God. It only gets you closer to God. (laughs) So, what does the psalm mean for you and me? Notice I didn't say, I'm not asking you what does it mean to you. There's only one interpretation. But what does it mean for you? Well, if you get nothing else from the message, get this theme, okay? Sometimes, sometimes we, lose, we lose sight of the, the trees for the forest, right? Uh, here, here's, here's the theme. Christ is sufficient. He is sufficient. And, and by that, I, I mean he's more than enough for you. More than enough. And, and this truth ought to bring great comfort, ought to bring encouragement for us. See, whenever you have Christ in your life, you have everything that you need because Christ is everything. He is. He's able to meet your every need. And so if you don't have something, that means it's not good for you. All right? That's the right perspective. The Bible says Jesus Christ is the Alpha and Omega, the first letter of the Greek alphabet, and the last. In other words, Revelation says it this way, he's the beginning and the end, and you ought to be thinking, by the way, he's everything in between that as well. The Bible says that Jesus Christ is the creator, and he's also the sustainer. I heard someone say, don't remember who said it, but there's not one rogue molecule in the entire universe. Not one. Not one rogue molecule in the entire universe. Every single atom and part of a molecule down to the very electrons, the neutrons and the protons and whatever else God has made is probably even stuff we don't even know about yet. He's in complete sovereign control over it. He is the sustainer. He's the infinite God who can meet whatever needs you may have. He is worthy of your trust. And so, my friends, please understand, this is the central theme of this psalm, that Jesus Christ is sufficient. 
And so since our good shepherd is this, he's also, by the way, a gracious host who is always near to care for us, the effect this should have on our life should just be mind-boggling. It should be that we are at rest. We have peace in our hearts. Even in a world that circumstantially, in your situations, those may not change. Just as it was for David. He's still in the presence of his enemies. <laughs> you might have to walk through valleys. The shadow of death. But God is with you. So may our hearts be at peace. Let's pray.